Nisambulubinaka, you're listening to Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific, Ngo Okoroi Hawkins. Coming up... Things have calmed down. Things have calmed down, especially in Port Moresby. There's increased security presence in Port Moresby. Order restored to the Papua New Guinea capital after several days of election-related violence. Also, a new website is being launched to help preserve Ngangana Tokelau. It actually is also maintaining cultural knowledge that the new younger generations may not have. And we tell to a Fijian pediatric dentist striving to transform health outcomes for Pacific children. These are widely prevalent in the Pacific. However, we do not have research that are actually available. It's calmer now in Papua New Guinea after days of election-related violence. The writs for the election were due to be returned on Friday this week, but this has now been pushed out by an additional two weeks to allow all votes to be counted. RNZ Pacific correspondent in Papua New Guinea, Scott Waide, spoke with Don Wiseman about these matters, but he began by looking at some of the key results that have emerged so far. Yeah, so we've got, as I mentioned earlier, the, the uh, James Marape, uh, the incumbent prime minister, his deputy John Rosso, the lay MP. Justin Tachenko has just been declared in Port Moresby South, and the uh, I think the one that stands out as a controversial seat, Don Polly, who was the previous treasurer, has won back the Kandep seat, um, but his victory, his election victory, has been challenged by Alfred Manasse. So that is due to end up in the court of disputed returns uh, in, in the next few weeks. Yes, and I imagine there's going to be many others that will be in the court of disputed returns, and it could be ages before all of that's sorted. Yeah, it, it usually takes, you know, between any, anything between two to three years or maybe sometimes four, or the full term of office before a, a decision is made. So it, it's a lengthy, lengthy process, a time-consuming. It just takes away the fire from doing the work the actual work in Parliament. So there's going to be quite a few of them, quite a few of them. Over in East New Britain, the former Hunters coach, Michael Murrum, has won the East New Britain regional seat. So he's an interesting figure to watch. I mean, he's been a very successful sporting figure and then now uh, people are expecting, kind of expecting the same kind of fire in, in the political front. Now, Belden Nama, the caretaker opposition leader, he has called for a state of emergency to be declared because of all the violence and the and the disruptions around the election. Yes, I haven't quite seen the statement, but um, there, there are quite a few people calling for a state of emergency. But the general feeling from ordinary Papua New Guineans, some are asking for a state of emergency. Others are saying, you know, it can be managed and a state of emergency is maybe a bit too extreme in light of what's happening in the elections. It's a subject that has divided many, many people. The, the writs were due back... Friday, July 29th, and that's been put back. It's been put back a couple of weeks, I think. Is that enough? Yes, from where where I see it, it's adequate. I mean, we, we've always had the possibility of extension because sometimes the polling isn't completed or the counting isn't completed or polling is delayed and then counting drags on into the date where the return of writs is supposed to happen. So that was expected for this particular election because we had a lot of problems starting with the polling in various locations and then the violence that happened and the delays in counting. 
So that was expected for this one. In terms of that violence, have things calmed in the last few days? Yes, since the last time we spoke, things have calmed down. Things have calmed down, especially in Port Moresby. There's uh, security presence, increased security presence in Port Moresby. The policemen that I've spoken to out of the Highlands say that uh, while it's relatively calm, there's, there's a lot of problems that they're still facing up there. And it's, there's a lot of uncertainty as well, but it's relatively calm where they are, uh, especially in the Inga province, Western Highlands, where we saw uh, a lot of the violence that happened. Usually in, in election time, what we see is, you know, a flare up of violence and then it quickly calms down and then people go about their normal business. But that doesn't mean that things have been resolved. It's just calmed down, basically. Tokelau's first language website is to be launched on Friday after four years in the making. Director of Education Elaine Lameta says it's been a long time coming, with elders double-checking all of the content and translations to make sure they met the language standards. She says the hope is the translations of scientific journals will strengthen the schooling in Tokelau and ignite a fire to help preserve the language, which is designated severely endangered by UNESCO. This is absolutely exciting because it's the first time we're able to launch a, a website specifically for the Ngangana Tokelau developments for schools here on Tokelau. So it brings together all of the resources that we have been able to develop through um, a funding from the Australian government. We have developed a range of materials using science subjects, for example, because that was um, deliberately so that we begin to to grow the vocabulary, to you know, create vocabulary that expresses um, concepts in the scientific fields uh, or health fields that we have, we don't normally use Tokelau language for. So it's that part is really significant for language development because it means that we're starting to have uh, the capacity to be able to express the concepts and the ideas that are present in these other uh, technical fields as such that we wouldn't normally have. So I think from that point of view, it is really about advancing the language. Uh, We're not just maintaining it or revitalizing it, which are all essential, but we've also got to see it expanding in terms of the fields that it can be used in. And to be able to do that means you need to have the, the, the words for it. You've got to have the phrases for it. So creating the resources um, that enable that has been really exciting. Um, I think the other part that's really significant also is because we've been we've used um, the actual research that was um, conducted on Tokelau uh, regarding Tokelau uh, issues. So, for example, uh, ocean acidification or water harvesting, um, climate change, um, COVID even, for example. So these things are specific to the Tokelau context. So we've used those research and actually um, commissioned writers to actually write write the books um, for the students up at secondary level, which means they're learning about their issues in their language from their own context. It's not just uh, providing our children with um, narratives and recounts, which are all great, but it's expanding the range of domains that the language can be used in. Because we're now opening up, because of the endangered um, status of Tokelau language, uh, we, in the spirit of revitalization, we have made 
all of those available. So anyone anywhere in the world can click on it, download it, be able to use it. Um, so freely available. Um, because again, we've got to enable other speakers anywhere in the world, because our numbers are so small, that they're able to to access those resources and, and use that. It's been over a period of, um, say, just four and a bit, four and a half years or something. Um, yeah, so it's been an intense um, time, but it's, you know, the momentum has just kept going. We, we haven't let up on it because we recognize that... Um, the need to continue. But I think the other um, aspect we want to acknowledge is that the funding by Australia in this instance has, has just been available to us um, to do this. Without that funding, we, we would not have been able to do it. How much funding did they provide? At least they've given about $1.5 million New Zealand dollars to it. So it's a substantial funding for language development. But because they are such high quality and we are using, you know, expert publication um, publishers in New Zealand. And then also because the resources are on multiple um, levels, really, you've got not just the print, and then, but you've also got the audio that goes with that, and you've got the flip books. Uh, so it comes in a range of forms. A massive effort. I mean, did the whole community mm. get involved and who has been instrumental in the construction of this? Um, yes, so our processes have included, like behind every resource is, you know, a group, a team of writers, translators, editors, um, a team that provides quality assurance and um, a group of our elders have been the ones that provide um, quality assurance. So each resource, you know, like by the time it hits the the publication phase, it has gone through at least eight readings, if not more, um, and with the elders actually giving feedback on the quality of language, um, on the accuracy of it, the naturalness of it, um, and so forth. So having the elders being part of it means that um, we were getting the, the quality advice that's needed. Because at the same time, texts were being translated or um, created, there was a real need for us to actually establish some systematic principles and processes for word creation, for example, so that we're actually attending to these decisions in a principled way, so as opposed to coming to it in a random way. Is there anything that you've learned throughout this process about Tokelau language that has surprised you? I think there's been... A whole number of surprises, particularly around the traditional concepts that some of our um, elders uh, have explained in the text. A surprising thing would be in the contextual, the cultural knowledge um, that comes through in terms of how they frame a particular concept. I'm just thinking now one of the books is about the blessings from the sea. Um, and the elder that wrote that was. Um, primarily describing the different um, parts of, of, of the sea, from, from the shore right through to the deep, and then describing the different species that are found along that transect, if you would think of it in terms of a transect. So the surprising thing is that one actually never knew these different distinctions in terms of the zones, um, but 
the traditional knowledge is actually capturing the fact that actually there's really um, sound um, basis for the decisions they make about which species they would fish and where they would fish it. And for me, that kind of um, cultural knowledge is, is just, yeah, it's not only surprising as such, because one didn't know it before, but it was just how you understand traditionally people have framed um, conceptual understanding from their interactions with their environment. We won't always have them with us. The books are exciting from the point of view. It actually is also maintaining cultural knowledge that the new younger generations may not may not have. A paediatric dentist in Fiji is dedicating his career to transforming dental health outcomes for children in the South Pacific region. Decay is one of the most chronic childhood diseases in Fiji, as well as New Zealand, and a leading cause for admissions to hospital for children. Jason Nath is urging people to take better care of their teeth in order to protect kids from developing health issues like diabetes. He spoke to Alicia Foon about his dream to see future generations in the Pacific grow up without fillings. Oral conditions, like, you know, we're just basically uh, looking at dental decay and uh, gum disease, which is periodontal uh, disease. So these are widely prevalent in the Pacific. However, we do not have research that are actually available. I mean, there have been work done by um, people um, who visit the countries, like, you know, um, some experts in the field. Sometimes we find publications that have reported on uh, epidemiology of oral diseases. But I think the ownership should be with the uh, Ministry of Health uh, or the uh, the government of the day uh, to invest in such um, surveys and uh, in order to document the um, prevalence of dental caries and periodontal disease. Uh, from our 2004 National Oral Health Survey here in Fiji, I can say that the, uh, the figures were around that 80% of the children had dental decay. 80% of the five-year-olds that were surveyed, that's that's high. That's, that's a very high prevalence rate. But um, we do not have research that actually documents this. So that's just one area that I'd like to strengthen. And then the high prevalence rates of oral of, the, of these oral conditions basically ties down to um, the literacy levels. Even though we've got high literacy rates in the Pacific, I'm not sure whether people understand um, about health literacy, about what causes dental decay. I mean, like it's the primary factors that we're looking at is that bacteria in the mouth, the plaque that's there and... Uh, and that it's diet related like you know i mean like the longer that we take to eat the longer the food is present in the mouth and that it gives time for bacteria to break that down into acids that actually attack the enamel so um yeah it, we need to give age related advice as to what can be done for what particular age groups like when a baby is unsettled refrain from using a honey dip pacifier to settle the child do not settle the child do not put the child to sleep with a bottle in their mouth because at night, salivary flow is low, and that's when a lot of this demineralization that can happen, and that's what's contributing to what we see early childhood caries, where the upper incisor teeth and the upper molar and lower molar teeth are actually uh, grossly decayed, and um, the child has got uh, abscesses in their mouth, and uh, yeah, that leads to a whole lot of complications. So people are actually presenting to the dentist 
very late, not just here in the Pacific, but also in New Zealand as well, uh, where I've actually worked for three years. So the health-seeking behavior needs to improve and uh, people need to utilize preventative services rather than going in for curative services when there's advanced stage of disease. What would you urge people to do? Putting oral health on the general agenda because there's no general health without oral health. Uh, oral conditions are actually interrelated with systemic conditions, like you know, um, uh, uh, periodontal disease is uh, directly related to uh, diabetes mellitus. And if you have a, a, a person who has a uncontrolled uh, blood sugar level, we will never be able to uh, stabilize the periodontal conditions. People need to understand that there is no general health without oral health. And um, my appeal would be to the uh, general health care workforce in the Pacific to uh, to start talking about the health of the mouth. Yeah, just talking about that, putting oral health on the general health agenda and, um, yeah, in policies. Absolutely. We need a lot of advocacy on just the basics first, that people need to maintain um, oral hygiene and they need to ha be positive about going to the dentist and uh, uh, just getting a routine check where, to the train eyes, we could pick out um, early lesions and treat them in a non-invasive way. And it's going to be easier for uh, regions like the South Pacific as well, where we are in a resource-limited setting. You know, we do not want uh, high uh, healthcare costs. Like, you know, if we can focus on primary prevention of disease, that will be so good. That brings us to the end of Pacific Waves for today. Remember, you can download us free to your device from Spotify, iHeart, Apple Podcasts. If you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. Mo de manda.